0: that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful... Thankful for all the many blessings we have. We're thankful for the freedom, the liberty we have to proclaim your word, to meet together, to enjoy the fact that our government continues to recognize that our liberties come from you and not from them. And Father, we know that all of this is under assault right now, and we just pray that we might be calm, that we might focus on that which really matters, that which counts for eternity. And that we might not be caught up, that we may not be knocked off balance by the shifting sands of political winds. But Father, we do pray that you might just give us greater, greater thirst for the knowledge of you and our Savior and your word, that we may grow. For Father, for when it's all said and done, what matters is that spiritual growth. So Father, we pray now that you would enlighten us this morning as we reflect upon many things that we have studied, trying to put things together in a way that gives clarity to how we are to live our spiritual lives, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Last week in the introduction to the message last week, as we were kind of wrapping up some of the details in our passage in Ephesians 4, I started off and I talked about the fact that I'd been recently asked a question about what's really important in the spiritual life. What, what, what is it that we really need to be doing in order to grow spiritually and somehow to prevent having some sort of spiritual blowout on the uh, road of life? And I focused last time on foundational element in that, and that is understanding who we are in Christ, that that's the focal point of our passage in Ephesians chapter 4. But as I reflected on that, I thought that, well, today I was going to do something a little different. I'm going to give a summary. i want to give a summary of the Christian life, what it means to live the Christian life. In other words, how does a Christian grow? Now, for some of you who have been either, A, listening to me or sitting in front of me and listening to me for the last 24 and a half years, you're going to hear some things that are familiar to you. And what I'm trying to do this morning is pull these things together. I'm not saying anything new, not saying anything you haven't heard before, for some of you who may be newer listening to me, there may be some things you say, oh, I wish you'd slow down. That is not going to happen this morning. This is a summary. So that means I'm, it's all out there. And going back to what I taught when I first went to Preston City Bible Church some 24 and a half years ago, and I started off going through the epistles of James and then the Gospel of John and Galatians. I didn't know the congregation very well when I went up there, and I thought at the time the, one of the most important issues in life is understanding that the offer of salvation is a free offer. It is a grace-based offer. There is no works required to be saved, and one should not attach works at the backside as a proof of one's salvation. And so in order to do that, I started with James because of the uh, difficult passage in James 2 that is often interpreted apart from context. I went through the Gospel of John because of its emphasis on faith alone in Christ alone. And I went through Galatians because Galatians was dealing with the Distinctive problem of Judaizers who'd come in behind Paul and were teaching that following the Mosaic law was necessary for either salvation or for spiritual growth. All of these reflect problems that people have today in trying to understand the spiritual life. And so this morning what I'm going to do is take us through the spiritual life. By way of introduction, I'm going to ask, answer the question, well, why should we grow? Why is that important? What does the Scripture say about spiritual growth? And there's no passage here that you're going to find uh, to be unusual. 1 Peter 2.2, verse I usually quote every Sunday morning because of its significance. Desire the unadulterated milk of the Word as newborn babies that you may grow by it. It is the word of God that provides the spiritual nourishment that God the Holy Spirit uses to strengthen us, as Paul puts it, in the inner man, that we may stand strong and grow strong as believers. And we are commanded here to desire it like a newborn baby. Have you ever been around a newborn baby when it gets hungry? It lets you know it's hungry, And I have often drawn the analogy that when people fast and they take themselves off of food for a long time, if you fasted for three or four days, your appetite goes away. And it doesn't come back until about the 38th, 39th, or 40th day. And so we are desired the milk of the word like a baby does. And if you're not fed, what happens? That desire for food goes away. And that's how a lot of believers are. They never don't get fed from their pulpits at all with the word of God. And so their appetite goes away and they, they just be, be stay spiritual babies the rest of their life. That was a problem that Paul faced in Corinth. James chapter one, verses two through four. Says, my brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing or the evaluation of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its maturing work that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The point is, James understands at the very outset of his epistle, that there is a process at work in our lives, and the end result is maturity. Therefore, he assumes we need to be moving in that direction. So Peter tells us that we are to desire the word that we may grow. James tells us that in order to get through the difficulties, the trials, the temptations, the testings of life, we have to have faith. But it's not faith in faith. That's what you get if you go to the health and wealth gospel churches it's faith in specifics that are stated in the scripture there's always an object to faith in the bible that is not faith in faith that's mysticism and that's not biblical and then at the end of second peter peter concludes with another command but grow by the grace and the knowledge of our lord jesus christ Grace and knowledge. See, n- learning things is integral and indispensable to the Christian life and Christian growth, learning the word of God. What's interesting, if I back up here, is you have a command in First Peter 2 to, to desire the word. You are to desire it. That, that appeals to your emotion. Volition. Where did emotion come from? It appeals to your volition. You have responsible volition, responsible choice. That's the first divine institution. You're responsible. We will be held accountable for the decisions we make in life. And we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the word. In James 1, 2 through 4, uh, we have a command in verse 4 that's kind of hidden in the English. Let endurance have its maturing result that uh, the word the verb have is in the imperative it's addressed to our volition again we are to uh, let uh, our responses to the tests in our life by applying the word have its maturing effect and then we are to grow by means of the grace of the lord jesus christ and knowledge of our lord jesus christ The emphasis in all this is that we have to know something, and what we know is to be the object of our faith, which is necessary in order to grow. Now, about 35 years ago, I came to Houston to do a weekend conference on the spiritual life at Grace Bible Church. Pastor was Harry Leaf at the time, under whom I was ordained, and I put together this chart. We haven't seen this chart. When I opened it today, I realized it hadn't been saved since 2013, so it's been a while since I've gone through this chart. But this is a blueprint of the Christian life. It's up on the website, I believe, so don't try to copy it all down. We're going to break it down into parts as we go through this this morning, so you'll be able to capture the different sections and everything as we go along. It starts with salvation. And there we trust in Christ as Savior. We become a new creation in Christ. We are born again. We are regenerated. And then what happens is we encounter the tests of life, the tests of doctrine, the tests of faith, as James puts it. It is um, the situations in life that make us decide, either positively the green path, I'm going to obey God and handle the situation on the basis of the Word of God, or we're going to choose the red path and we're going to try to do it our own way and handle it out of our own uh, limited abilities and the sin nature. The cycle above is walking by the Spirit. It's the walk by fellowship, walking in the light, abiding in Christ, Uh, applying the word in your life, staying in fellowship. It produces divine good, which is different from the other side, which is just human good. Human beings produce all kinds of good works. They can read their Bible. They can pray. They can memorize their Bible. They can do all kinds of things. I've even heard an unbeliever give the gospel to somebody. Michael Medved when they don't broadcast... I don't even know if he still has his radio show, but they used to broadcast it here. And somebody called in, and they were talking about Christianity. And he asked him, he said, well, what makes somebody a Christian? And the person went off on a work salvation. And Medved corrected him and said, that's not what Christianity teaches. The Apostle Paul says, it's not by works, it's by faith. <laughs> You've got to love it. And so... You know, we have a lot of people who can produce good moral behavior, but it has no eternal value. That's the difference between divine good and human good. And so Scripture teaches us that when we're walking by faith, it increases our capacity for life and the fullness of our life, and it gives evidence that that God's plan is good and perfect, Romans 12.2. It leads to the development of steadfast endurance, and as we endure, according to our passage there in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that uh, we continue to increase endurance and perseverance as we mature, and that leads to the adult spiritual life. But if we choose the negative path and we try to handle it ourselves, it produces sin, or it produces human good, which is uh, just empty morality that doesn't count for eternity. And the Bible refers to it as either carnal death or temporal death. We're living like a spiritually dead person. That leads to weakness and instability being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And it leads to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And this, this is just a cycle that continues to go down the drain. So we go one way or the other with each choice that we make, and the end result is when we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, we will be at after the rapture at the judgment seat of Christ. And there we are going to receive rewards and inheritance for that which we did when we were walking by the Spirit. And if we have not walked by the Spirit, there will not be rewards or inheritance. There will only be eternal life in heaven, and there will be a loss of rewards and temporary shame. Now, we've covered all of this in detail. This is a summary. So that's the blueprint. So we're going to start off with the first part, which is salvation. And salvation is by grace through faith ephesians two eight and nine for by grace that is undeserved merit, unearned kindness, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that what does that describe see Lordship salvation says it describes the faith that the faith is the gift of God, but as we studied when we went through it, that is not grammatically uh, possible. it refers to the whole phrase by grace a uh, uh, Excuse me, by grace through faith salvation. That by grace through faith salvation is not of yourselves. It, referring to the by grace through faith salvation, is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. In Acts 4.12, it says, "...nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name." under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Christianity is exclusive. There's only one way, and that's trust in Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. Those who are not Christians or who hate Christianity just absolutely go bonkers when they hear that because they believe in diversity and that every path leads to God. But God does not believe in diversity. He believes in one way, and that is by faith in Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We trust in Christ, but God saves us. He renews us. He regenerates us. He gives us eternal life. He imputes Christ's righteousness to us and justifies us. That is salvation. But after salvation, then what? Then we are going to live our lives, and whether we want to have this happen or not, we are going to run into what James describes as uh testing, Uh, we are going to run into temptation. It's the same word in the Greek, so you have to look at the context to see whether it's talking about temptation or testing. But in a temptation, we are tested as to whether or not we're going to respond the right way or not. And so when we have tests of faith, that's not talking about the act of believing. The noun often describes what we believe. It is not testing if we can believe something because everybody believes things. It is testing whether we are going to apply what we be- say we believe, if we are going to apply the body of doctrine that, uh, that the Bible uh, gives to us. And so at each opportunity, we have to decide uh, positively, are we going to apply the word that we have been taught? Are we going to claim the promises that we know so that we can grow and handle this by the power of the Holy Spirit, or are we just going to go forward and do it ourselves? So we have these passages like James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, and not if you encounter them, but when you do, because we will all encounter these various trials. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, and we can do this because we know something. Once again, we come back to knowledge. Biblical knowledge is is inherent to Christian growth. You can't avoid it. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on singing music. I would guess that one out of 100,000 contemporary music that's created for the church since 1960 is worthless spiritually. Colossians tells us that we are to teach and admonish one another by what we sing. You can't teach or admonish people anything with 99.9999% of what is sung in churches today. It has no content. We have to know something. And what does what James say you know? You know that the testing or the evaluation of your faith, that is what you believe, produces endurance. It only produces endurance if you respond positively. If we don't respond positively, it doesn't produce endurance. It leads to failure. We've seen this in Ephesians 4. For example, the passage we're studying, this I say therefore and testify in testifying the Lord that y'all should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thinking. We have to operate on a new basis for thought, new content of thought. Ephesians 2.2 described this walk of the Gentiles as according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. It's the thinking of the world, which is the same as the thinking of Satan. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is chastising the Corinthians because they are living like mere men. They're living like Gentiles, like what they were before they were saved. He says, for you are still fleshly, in other words, living in the power of the sin nature. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not fleshly, that is carnal or sinful, and walking like what? Like mere men. We know that metaphor, walking, it's, you're living like a person who has not been regenerated and been given new life in Christ. And when we trust Christ as Savior, Romans 6-4 says we get a new identity. Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism, that is the baptism by the Holy Spirit, identification into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We're going to live differently. We're going to walk a new way. Colossians 1.10 says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in your emotions toward God. Doesn't say that, does it? Knowledge increasing in the knowledge of God. Ephesians five two says another thing about this walk. It is walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. And then a few verses later, Paul gives us another walk command. He says that we are to walk as children of light. So this is the new man. We are in the new man, our new position in Christ. We're in the body of Christ, and these are the standards of behavior for those in the body of Christ. But we are not to walk in darkness, which is what Paul was talking about, the walking like a mere man. Uh, we are not to walk as the Gentiles walked. John in 1 John 1.6 says, If we say we have fellowship or partnership with God, not salvation, but temporal fellowship, And walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. And then in verse 7, he says, But if we walk in the light, that is, if we're a believer and we're growing, maturing, we're walking in that top cycle, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sins. 1 John 1 9 is going to say, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from un- all unrighteousness. So verse 7 is laying the basis for verse 9. If verse 7 is the basis for why we are forgiven sin on a daily basis, then why would he even say if we confess our sins? It's not it's unnecessary because if this is automatic. Verse seven says, what the basis for confession is the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, which is what is the basis for cleansing us of all sin, and confession makes it happen. The problem is we are need either walk by faith or not. The problem with the Old Testament uh, Israelites was that, as they came out of Egypt and were in the wilderness, they did not mix faith. With their walk, indeed, the gospel was proclaimed to us as well, us new church church age of believers, as to them, Old Testament saints, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith. The Word only profits you if you're mixing it by faith, so to evaluate that, we go through tests of faith second peter one three his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So it's sufficient for anything in life. You may have new prob- you may have old problems with new names, but they're still old problems and God gave us a solution for the old problems. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, notice it's through knowledge again. By which, by that glory and virtue of God, he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, through the promises, through the knowledge of God's word, we may be partakers of the divine nature. And that has to do with a partnership with God in our lives, walking by the Spirit, all of the other metaphors, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So 2 Timothy 2.15 gives us the command to be diligent. It's a Greek word that means to be diligent. That's an accurate translation. The old King James translated study because they translated it in light of the context. The context says, be diligent to present yourselves approved unto God. How do you do that? How do you present yourself approved unto God? Because you're a laborer who does not need to be ashamed, you rightly divide the word of truth. See, the laborer who's not ashamed is the one who rightly divides the word of truth. You can only rightly divide the word of truth or rightly understand it if you are what? Studying the word of God. If you're just... Uh, skimming over it or reading it, that's, that's really not gonna ultimately get you there. You read it because you need to understand the whole thing and be reminded of things, but there needs to be some diligence about it. John 832, Jesus said, a much maligned and misquoted statement, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. See, what did Paul say? Rightly divide the word of truth. That's the Bible. So when Jesus says, you shall know the truth, he's talking about the Bible. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. Sanctify them by means of your truth. Your word is truth. And then in John 15, 7, Jesus said, if you abide in me, which is a term for fellowship, and my words abide in you, which is necessary to stay in fellowship, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. In other words, if you're not walking in fellowship, walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, your prayer life is going to be pretty useless. Okay? You're just going to be talking to yourself. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you. So we not only have to read the word, we have to study the word, and we have to internalize the word, memorize the word. This is so important that when in John chapter 6, when John tells us that that Jesus' disciple, all of these disciples, there were hundreds of them, that were listening to Jesus up to that point, that when they grasped what he was saying earlier in John 6, they left him. This is going to be too hard for us. And the 12 were still there. Of course, Judas was probably hanging back, wishing he could leave too. But Jesus looks at them and goes, Why are you guys still here? Everybody else has left. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you believe that? you believe Jesus has the words of eternal life? Then that ought to make a difference in how we think and how we live. And knowing the words of eternal life is what is meant by Paul in renewing our mind. Romans 12, 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or demonstrate, it's a legal term for offering proof, that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. And then our passage we looked at the last few weeks, Ephesians 4.23, command to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We're only renewed in the spirit of the mind if we're taking in the word of God. So we have to what? Read the word. Make a plan. We often put reading plans for a year up. Uh, On the website, on the Dean Bible Ministries website, you have to read the word, but you also have to study the word. You have to study the word, come to Bible class, listen online, be involved in something that's going to get you truth and truly understand and interpret the word. You have to memorize the word. You have to hide it in your heart. You have to have a plan to memorize scripture, memorize Gospel verses, memorize spiritual life verses, memorize promises, so the next time you have to escape a war torn country, you have a lot of promises to claim. (laughs) You never know when you're going to need them, so you've got to be prepared. Internalize the word. Make it such a part of you that that becomes your natural reflex is to apply the word, and that's the last step. That's what's involved. So that's how we grow. We grow by means of the word. So we've got salvation. We hit tests of faith, and we have a choice. Are we going to go uh by walking by the Spirit or not? So on what basis, then, do we make the right decision? Well, that's what we've been studying. Remember Ephesians 2.15 told us that in the Old Testament time up until the day of Pentecost, that there was a distinction between Jew and Gentile that was established by the Mosaic law. But now, uh, at the cross, Christ abolished the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man. That's the body of Christ, the church one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might then reconcile them both to God in one body. So we are one one new man, one new body, one new building, one new temple in the metaphors of that chapter. That's profound. And as a result of that, he reminds them in 422 that they, at salvation, took off concerning their former conduct, the old man, which was their position in Adam, which is growing corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And the positive command then is what we just, I just stated, we're to be renewed in the spirit of our thinking and put, and because we have already put on the new man, which is the body of Christ that happened through the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is what is described in Colossians 3.11. 3.10, 3.11 are what we put together. We've already put on the new man who is renewed present tense, who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. See, that's the baptism by the Spirit. That's when it happened. And so now what? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things are new. The old has passed away. That's who we are. So the first step is that when you hit these things, you have to say, how am I supposed to do, handle this as a new creature in Christ? I am in the new man. I have a new identity. I have been adopted into the royal family of God. What am I supposed, how am I supposed to handle this? Are you just going to do it the same old way you've always done it? Acting like a mere man, acting like uh, Gentiles. So if we choose that path, this is where it leads. It leads to sin and human good and temporal death, living like a dead person, further weakness and instability in life. You will make bad decisions and then compound those bad decisions as you continue in this downward spiral. Galatians 5, 17 to 22 tells us that the flesh, the sin nature, wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. That's this battle constantly. Are you going to follow the path by walking by the Spirit or the lower path walking according to the flesh? And the evidence of your walk is in 519 to 21. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, etc., And then it says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A lot of people mean, well, if you do those things, you're not going to get saved. Wrong. It says you won't inherit the kingdom. It doesn't say you won't be in the kingdom. We've studied that many, many times. That that if you continue to live in that, that bottom cycle of walking according to the flesh, then you're going to come up with nothing at the judgment seat of Christ. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, this isn't physical death. This is carnal death. This is you're going to be living like a a, a, a unsaved person. Romans six twenty one to 23 ends by saying, for the wages of sin is death. Most people take that as a salvation verse. It's not. Paul quit talking about how to get to heaven and being justified at the end of chapter 5. Starting in chapter 6, he started talking about how a saved person is supposed to live. And if a saved person doesn't live in light of their new position in Christ, they're going to continue to be a slave to unrighteousness, and the result of that is you're going to be living like a spiritually dead person. That's what he's saying here. The wages of sin is death. That's that's the paycheck, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. The paycheck is death. But the gift of Christ is eternal life. Don't squander that paycheck. By living on the basis of your sin nature, so James says. After talking about the tests of faith, if you have a problem, ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. They're unstable. They can't make good decisions. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. He's 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 a two-souled man. Literally. He, he can't make up his mind. He's unstable. He waffles. He's falling apart as a result of these tests. He's unstable in all his ways. He's a backslider, Proverbs 14:14. 14, 14. So then we come to the top cycle, walking by means of the spirit. And that produces life, the abundance of life. Jesus said, "I came not only to give life, but to give life abundantly." And it leads to endurance and it leads to an adult spiritual life. The problem is we try to do what the Galatians believe, did, and Paul starts off his section on the spiritual life, which is chapter 3 through chapter 6, and he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to grow by means of the flesh? What's interesting is that language in, by means of the Spirit, and the flesh and being perfected are the same words that are used, there's the slide, um, in Galatians 5.16. You have means uh, begun by means of the Spirit, or you're now being made complete by the flesh. But in Galatians 5.16, he finally starts to answer it, having gone through some significant background. You think I review a lot. Galatians 3, 4, and most of half of five were all reviewed so that he could make his point, the answer to Galatians 3.3. 3. I say then, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. So, in other words, don't try to do it by the flesh. Do it by walking by the Spirit. And then the fruit of the Spirit, these character qualities, are what will eventually, gradually, incrementally be manifest in your life as you grow. Romans eight five and six say the same thing. For those who live according to the flesh, the sin nature, let their minds set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded are my, you're running your thinking on the sin nature is death. It's temporal death, living like a spiritually dead person. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So we have three enemies, the flesh, which I've been talking about, which is our sin nature. Then we have the world, which I call the cosmic system. It is all of the thinking of all of humanity apart from Christ and apart from God operating on his own ideas of truth, and then the devil. First Peter 5, 8 and 9 warns us, be sober. That doesn't mean give up alcohol. That means to think in an objective Calm manner. Be vigilant, because your adversary, your adversary and my adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I don't. I think that refers to Satan himself, but I think it refers to Satan and all the demons at his command. It's not just him, because he's not omnipresent. What are, What's the solution? cast out the demon, take dominion in the name of Jesus, kick kick Satan out of the country or something like that, which is what the Pentecostals do. No, the Bible never says that. It says resist him. That means you have to say no. Just say no. Resist him steadfast in the faith. What's faith composed of? Knowledge. You have to know something. You have to know the Bible. You have to understand the promises, internalize it, apply it. Because you know the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So how do we recover when we've sinned? Psalm sixty-six eighteen says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. You know, if you've been out of fellowship, you've been sinning, then God's not going to listen to your prayers. In John 13, Jesus goes through this, this ritual of foot washing because he's teaching the disciples that need to be continually cleansed from sin. And Peter doesn't like that. He says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And and the Lord said to him in verse uh, verse 8, if I don't wash you, you have no share of inheritance with me, no part with me. But that word meros means a share of inheritance. Why? Because you'll never be in fellowship. You'll never be cleansed. And so Peter said, okay, give me a full bath. And Jesus says, no, I don't need to do that either. He who is bathed that is fully cleansed at salvation. That's when it happens. Needs only to wash his feet. That's a partial washing. That's confession. But is completely clean. And you all, it's plural, y'all, referring to the eleven disciples. And he says, y'all are clean, but not all of you. And then, then he makes the next statement. He's going to say, there's one here who isn't. And that would be Judas. So what are we to do? We're to examine ourselves with 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight And First John 1, 9, if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, he is a faithful and just to forgive us our sins, the ones we just mentioned. And then he goes on in his grace to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we are restored to that fellowship that walk by the Spirit, that walk in the light. So that's what we have here. We have choices to make every single day in many different ways. Are we going to walk by the Spirit or walk by the sin nature? What's it going to be? The result is that we're going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, And at the judgment seat of Christ, those who have walked by the Spirit are going to have gold, silver, and precious stones, metaphorically, and they're going to receive rewards and an inheritance. But those who have not, and there are millions, all they heard was Jesus saves, they believed it, and they never got any more from the Word. There's going to be a loss of rewards and temporary shame. So... 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's not the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. This is the evaluation of believers at the judgment seat of Christ. Those who have done something are given rewards. The doing of something is called overcoming. In Romans 12.21, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's talking to believers he says you need to overcome evil. And if you don't, you're not an overcomer. And if you're not an overcomer, you're not going to get additional crowns, rewards, and blessings. 1 John 2.13 and 14 and other passages there talk about the overcomer as one who has overcome uh, the wicked one and overcome the world as well. Um, and I knew I'd be running out of time by here, so I didn't spend a lot of time on this since I taught it a lot frequently uh, recently. In Revelation 2.7, Uh, The first church, the church of Ephesus, and each of the seven churches has an overcomer promise. To the one who overcomes, that is, straightens out the problems mentioned in the evaluation, I will give a special blessing to. And in this one, it's to eat from the tree of life. And I've just recently went through that. That doesn't mean you get saved. That means you have a greater fullness and abundance of life and blessing. So this is the issue. The issue is... How are you going to live your life? Are you going to live your life by doing what comes naturally, or are you going to live your life by walking by the Spirit? That is how you live the Christian life. Are you going to fail? Sometimes. Sometimes many times. Sometimes incredibly. Sometimes you're going to shock yourself. But God's grace is going to forgive you, and you're going to pick up and move on and continue to grow and that's that's the process but what's important is you have to take in the word again and again and again if you think an hour on sunday morning is going to overcome all the garbage that you've taken in all week long you're fooling yourself that's why we have to constantly let our minds be washed by the water of the word and that means reading the bible It means studying the Bible, it means internalizing the Bible, it means applying the Bible over and over and over again, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get this overview, to be reminded of what the plan and purpose of the spiritual life is, to understand this blueprint, Uh, helps us understand how all the parts fit together and that this is grounded for us in the church age and our new identity, that we are a new creation in Christ, and that we have been given new blessings and new privileges that no believer at any other time in history has been given, and that, that we have these opportunities to serve you in so many different ways. For as those who are members of the body of Christ, we have been given spiritual gifts to serve one another as we love one another. So, Father, we pray that this might not just be sort of a theological exercise, but an exercise in uh, being reminded of how we ought to be living, how we ought to be shaping the priorities and the activities of our life so that we are not distracted by the cares of the world, but we live ever to ever please you, looking forward to that time when we will hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, Father, we pray for each of us that we would be challenged and as well that we would be comforted by your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.